Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to talk about the risks of working at a startup and finding a new job in tech. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. What's up, everyone? My name is James Quick, and I am a full-time technical content creator. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton, and I'm the Director of Design at Zeal. And we've got two amazing sponsors for this episode in Hashnode and Daily Dev. Hashnode is my favorite platform for writing articles, and often what I do is write them on my own platform, on my personal blog, and then cross-post them on Hashnode to get some more interaction, comments, visibility, all those things, and it works really, really well. And if you're so fortunate, your article can get picked up by our other sponsor, which is Daily Dev, a Chrome extension that I use every single day that shows me a curated list of relevant articles for topics that I'm interested in in the tech ecosystem. So go and check out Hashnode and Daily Dev. And thanks to both for sponsoring. And we've got our friend James Perkins on today as a guest. James, welcome. Do you want to tell people a little bit uh, about yourself and what you do? Yeah, my name is James Perkins. I have a YouTube channel, which is Learn to Code with James. I am technically unemployed until Tuesday, but then I am the senior developer advocate for clerk.dev. You'll be seeing a lot more of me. And then previously, I was at Tina as the developer advocate. And I'm happy to hear to talk about startup risks and, and all the fun stuff that comes with it. Uh, I also just want to say the last time that you were on our podcast, you talked about your SaaS app that you built mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And how you're using Clerk, if I remember correctly, as part of the authentication. So Correct. I just love that that, I mean, mm-hmm. it all feeds into itself. You like chose them. You like them anyways. And then it worked out for you to get a job there. That's awesome. Yeah, it was kind of a weird interaction because I was the first person ever to write and do video content on their platform. Mm-hmm. Because I found them randomly one time and I was the first ever person to do any mm-hmm. content. And I've done content ever since with them in some nature. So mm-hmm. it's yep. super cool to be able to pick them. Can I ask a question that you don't have to answer? Yeah. Did you reach out to them or did they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm completely honest and open about it. So yeah, I sent them a message. I can actually just read you the message. I'll okay. even go that far. I basically sent the message that basically said, hey, I just got let go from Tina. Let me know if there's any work that you need doing or if you're looking for a new dev advocate or dev rel, especially on content. And that was it. That was the message. And everything fed in from that. Love it. One, I don't think we could have picked a better time to have you on as a guest. Like in this week span that you're technically unemployed, it's wild. So that's perfect timing, which is really great. One of the things we've done is not super formally, but occasionally we'll do like rants of some sort. So I've got a rant that I think is perfectly fitting today, James. You'll appreciate it. And it's basically based on what you just said. But a hack, if you want to work at a company, create content using that company's product. Like it's really not that hard to get on their radar, at least for them to have an idea of you're someone who's used the product, that you're excited about it. And that seems to be exactly what led to like the Tina opportunity. And then like you've done plenty of work with Clerk leading to the clerk opportunity. So if you know who you want to work for, there's tons of hacks to go and get into it. Like create content around that product or that company. Reach out to people on LinkedIn that work at that company that do the job that you want. Reach out to hiring managers. Like you have a lot of things that you can take control of if you know where you want to be. So the more opinionated you are about where you want to be, the more tangible things you can do to specifically get, hopefully, into that company or at least get on their radar. 
Yeah, it's 100% the easiest way now more than ever is to build something using their product and then mm -hmm. write about it or do a video or yep. just tweet them and be like, look what cool thing I built with this or some interaction with them. Being part of their Discord communities, all those things lead to them knowing who you are, especially smaller companies like startups that are in, you know, either seeded or series A or series B, like those first few rounds of funding, they need those people. They need champions in the community to go and sell their product to other people. And then that usually leads to you ending up there. We see it time mm -hmm. and time again. It's it's very obvious that if you talk about a product for long enough, sooner or later, you'll probably end up working there. Kent Dodds is another example with Remix. He was talking about, you know, it almost looked like an elevator, secret elevator pitch. <laughs> that he wanted to work there and then it all came through and like, you know, now that's all he ever talks about, but that's a prime example. Same for me with Tina. I really like their product. I talked about it in one video and then like two months later I was hired. Yep. The power of content or just, I mean, everything is content really, but just the voice, like just sharing about yep. it on Twitter, interacting with them on Twitter. Like it doesn't have to be these big, huge things, just the small things to be a part of the conversation that's going on relevant to that company. And with Clerk, it was so big that people at the company had found out that I had left my job and had messaged Colin, who's the CEO, saying that I'd lost my job and we should try and get him to work for us. Mm -hmm. And all I've done is done videos for them. And, you know, I've done a few paid gigs for them, but most of it's just been content I've built because I like the product and I think it's cool. Makes it more enjoyable too. Like if you get to go and work for a product that you already enjoy, work for a company right. of the product that you already enjoy. I think we may have jumped in a little quickly. So do you want to give a little bit of background? A key thing that I want to know, because we're talking about like risks of working at startup. What kind of phase was Tina in? How many employees, funding, that sort of thing? Like what was kind of the, the state that Tina was in? And then what's happened the last week? Yeah, so Tina is in before series. So that's basically just seeders. So they get like an investment from a bunch of different people. Usually it's somewhere between like half a million and maybe $3 million total. And basically the idea here is to find if your product is actually worth the investment in the future. Does it have product market fit? Do you actually know what you're doing? Could you run a company? It's basically a test. They give mm -hmm. you a bunch of money. They test to see whether or not this product will last. Tina's doing really well. They've got some really big clients that are using the product. We are one of them, by the way. Yeah. So I can say that. Yeah, I was going to say, you can say that. Yeah, we're using Tina internally. Yep, yep. <laughs> so like PlanetScale, for example, is using Tina. You guys seem to be really enjoying it. There's other people that, you know, I'm under an NDA, so I can't really talk about them, but there's bigger people than PlanetScale using it. So they're in a really good spot, but the problem is, is that there's a point where essentially a startup has a runway. And that runway is how much money do we have? And if we stay at our current rate and nothing changes, how long do we have until we get to the end? And the money runs out and we have to shut the doors. Is that six months, a year, whatever? And when you get to do your first Series A, which is the first real round of fundings where you get a big injection of cash, it could be another 10, 15, 20 million, it could be more. You have to make sure that you have enough runway to make it to the end of the funding. Mm -hmm. So if you start raising money today, odds are it's going to take somewhere between three to six months to actually get the cash in the bank. So it's a long time. So companies, what they'll do is they'll get to the point where they feel the pressure of like, we need to 
save money to make sure that we have enough to make it to the series because there have been companies in the past that are like we're going to do the round of funding and they run out of money before the round is over and then they lose everything because no one wants to work for free so what happened was i came to work on monday and it was just unfortunate that i was part of some cost savings and it makes more sense to get rid of someone who's essentially a marketing person than it is to get rid of someone in the core engineering part so I talked to Scott for a bit and we talked about what was going to happen. And I told him, you know, I have no problem with this. I think you guys are going to make it to series A and I wish you all the best and I'll still use the product and I'll still rep the product. And if you need help with blog posts and all that kind of stuff, just let me know and, and we can figure something out. And I was let go on Monday morning at like 9.30, which is always, you know, one of those weird situations. And then that's where you start with the, what do I do now, right? How much money do I have in the bank? How long can we last with what we've got? How much severance am I getting? All those kinds of things start to play in. I just did a video on this. So if you want like a really in-depth version of basically what I did, it's on my YouTube channel. But essentially the idea is, okay, how long do I have till I need a job? And then now it's like, okay, what can I do to get a job? And essentially the idea is that you bang the drum is like, hey, I'm looking for work. Who can I message? Who do I know in the industry? Who can I hit up? And then that's where it starts. So the first person I actually hit up was Colin, who works at Clerk. He is one of the founders and said, hey, I'm no longer at Tina. Didn't expect a response right away. So then, you know, I started messaging other people. Like, you know, I messaged you, James. I messaged a few people in the Jamstack communities and just said, hey, if you're looking for a dev advocate, let me know put a tweet out that said I left Tina and then like just let the job opportunities sort of come to me. <laughs> so to put it in perspective, I could have not worked for four months yeah. before I'd really have to start worrying about we're going to run out of money and the stress would come in. But since I was 16, I've only mm -hmm. ever not had a job for more than a couple of months. And that was when I moved to America because I couldn't work. So I was like, nope, I'm not doing that. I just want to get back to work. So I just started <laughs> reaching out to people. And a lot of people reached out and said, hey, we've got lots of opportunities. Here is a Love list. It. Here's a bunch of DMs from a bunch of different people. People asking if I wanted to go back into management or if I just wanted to be part of DevRel or did I want to run DevRel? A bunch of different questions. And that just led to me taking on the clerk role 12 hours later. And that's my week in a nutshell. <laughs> Whirlwind. It's funny, like my wife, Jess, when I've talked about working at startup, she's kind of brought up the what if they fail type thing. And failing is not what happened here, to be clear. Like you specified super optimistic about Tina going forward, just they've got to make it to the next round, et cetera. But what if something like that happens? What if they fail? What if something like this happens? And I am in such a privileged position to say this now and have said this to her for the last couple of years. Like I feel like I'm in such a good spot in my career and my personal brand that I'm not worried about that at all. Like it would be really unfortunate. It would really suck. But my network, my reputation, having an audience, like all those things, I'm super confident and being able to find something relatively quickly to get back into doing this sort of job for another company that I would also be really excited about. And this is the like the perfect example of this. Yeah, people get scared. Startups are seen in two lights. There's the one light, which is, you know, in shows like Silicon Valley or the Facebook movie or whatever, where it's this awe encompassing place where you have unlimited food and snacks and, you know, everyone has MacBooks and loads of money and blah, blah, blah. Right. So that's one side of startups that people imagine is true. 
And in some cases, don't get me wrong, I have worked at a unicorn, and that is true. That's what it's like. Mm. And then there's the other side of startups, which is they've just got a small amount of money. Yep. And that's all they've got, and they've got to make it last as long as possible. And yeah, you're right. There is a huge risk with running startups. Going into a startup is risky, but so is working for a Fortune 500 company or a Fortune 1000 company or a Fortune 100 company, which I've worked at Fortune 500 and I've watched 20% of the workforce be laid off on the same day. You know, in my version, 20% would may have been three people at Tina, but 20% at Fortune 500 company is thousands of of people people, that you watch walk out of the door and across the parking lot into their car and they have to go home and explain to their wife or whoever where you think you've got this secure job because it's a Fortune 500 and they get laid off as well. Like it's risks on both sides. It's just depending on where the risk lies. Yep. And there's benefits to risks. Well, so that's actually exactly what I was going to ask you. Like you've gone from one startup to another, both super small, like startup size is relative to people, but in the grand scheme of things, very small companies. What about startups interest you? What are the benefits that you look at when you get to work for a small company that you enjoy? Yeah, so there's a few things for me. So to give people some history, I've worked at Plaid, which is the biggest fintech provider in the United States. And they, if you've used any kind of software where you need to transfer money, it's probably powered by Plaid. Things like Coinbase or Cash App, all those kinds of things use Plaid. So I work for them. They are a unicorn in standards. And unicorn means a billion dollar evaluation? Mm-hmm billion valuation yeah. or more they were last valued at five billion which is when i left they were a five billion wow so they're probably closer i want to say to 10 billion at this point they may even be more but they haven't done funding in a while but anyway so i've done that and i've done tina which when i started there was like eight people that's wild yeah so i went from like hundreds to eight and i've done some in between and then clerk i want to say it's like 15 maybe so it's not mm. very many. They're all very small and all in different types of funding, whether it's series A, B, seed, etc. So when I started a plaid, we were at B. And the risk there is that something terrible happens, right? Lawsuit where they get sued for billions of dollars, their evaluation plummets, and that's the end. Or a security breach or something like that where they leak thousands of passwords. So the risk there is mitigated pretty much. Like They've been in the industry for a while, not really big risk. But you get the benefits of startups, right? So one benefit of having worked at a startup is you can write that. People like to write Fang, right? They're all the biggest startups. It's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Meta, whatever you want to be called this week. Those are like the gold standards of what people think you should work at. But there's another gold standard in startups, which are unicorns. So if you work at a unicorn, people tend to believe that you can do a lot. They tend to believe that you are like a 10x developer, for example, or something similar. And when you're in those circles, if people decide to leave that company and start their own, those people tend to leave and bring people with them. It's a very Mm -hmm. big thing in startups. So when I left Plaid, I left with equity, essentially. So whenever they go liquid, I'll get a payout of some denomination and it will probably be mid six figures (laughs) maybe more which is awesome i was only there for 18 months but that's still a lot of money regardless when i came to 
Tina, I got an option to buy stocks, which are a bit different. So basically, you get equity in the company at some amount of shares that you can just buy at the value that they're worth the day that you sign the point. contract. Yeah. So did you have to wait before you could actually exercise those options? So yes, and I vested some, but not all of my options. So they're there. I could technically execute on them today, whatever hmm. they are, maybe a dollar or 92 cents, whatever. But okay, they'll just stay there until I believe that Tina is worth the investment or somebody wants to buy them from me because that can happen. And then at Clerk, I have a percentage of equity, which I don't actually know what it is off the top of my head, but it's a percentage of the company. So basically, I get to own part of the company and I can use that however I see fit in the future. I remember when Plaid was getting bought by Visa, when that deal was happening, there were literally black market deals where people were hitting up Plaid employees to try and buy their shares because they believed yeah. they would be worth so much more when the deal went through that they were willing to buy them at a premium today. Like the valuation was 532 a share and people were getting hit up for like $1,000 shares. They oh, will wow. pay you double what they're worth today because we believe that the deal mm-hmm. is worth more be worth that that in the future. Yeah. yeah. So it's startup life is wild. Like it's high risk, high reward. It's very much can be a gamble depending on where you get in. I think if you get to Series B, in my opinion, I've not seen many Series Bs really fail. So if they can get to their second round of proper funding, at that point, unless you're burning through money like crazy, which (laughs) we have seen that happen, like WeWork is an example of that. They were a unicorn that just burnt to the ground. As long as you're doing it safely and the company is doing it safely and they're not just spending money like crazy. Yeah, I think once you get to Series B, the risk and reward starts to kind of go more for reward than risk that's a big thing for me the option so the way it's worked for me and the two startups that i've worked at all sierra now planet scale is you get a certain amount of shares that you have the ability to buy but mine have both had a one-year cliff Mm -hmm. so what happens is you have to wait a full year of working there then you can right at that year exercise or buy a quarter of your total options And then for me, they've started vesting every month after that through the four-year period. So that's a great way to keep people on at your company at least for a year and then more if they want to continue to take advantage of those stock options. But having the option to exercise after a year to get a quarter of your options is a really big incentive to stick around at least for that long. Yep, that was the same. So at Plaid, they were RSUs, which are basically guaranteed stocks. Just grants, yeah. Yep. So you just get them as a grant. They're guaranteed. You don't have to buy them from the company. They're given to you as an incentive. So for Plaid, it was one year cliff for the first hundred. And then after that, they just vested every quarter Mm -hmm. from there. But technically it was every month, but they vested every quarter. So if you left in the middle of a quarter, you would get that percentage of them. And the same with Tino, it's the same thing. One year cliff for the first percentage, and then the rest is vested monthly. And I believe Clerk will probably be the same or I won't know till next week, but they'll probably be the same because usually that's just the standard at this point. I've never worked at a startup that has had the stock options. So I'm curious, James, I know know that you've worked at Microsoft. How did those stock options work for like an established company? Yeah, Microsoft specifically, when I joined, I think it was $5,000 worth of options grant. Maybe it's 5,000 shares. I can't remember to be honest. But those were grants. So I didn't have to pay anything for that stock. It started vesting at a year. 
and invest it every quarter, just like we said. And then you can also get refresh grants. So if you've been there for two years and the company's like, we want to give you an incentive to stick around another year, they could throw on an even mm. bigger grant now, a refresh grant, still give you that one year cliff where now they're betting, we're going to throw this money your way so that you stick around another year. And then hopefully after that, and actually what would happen at Microsoft is you would get these refresh grants, I think every year. So if you think about like, after you've been at the company for four years, you're getting a quarter of all these different ones every year, if that makes sense. So you're actually like vesting a lot at the time, if you stay four to five years to have them all start vesting each year. They were all grants that never had to pay for anything. We also had an employee stock purchase program where you could buy stock at a discounted rate. Didn't do then. If I would have really understood what that was, I would have done more of it. And now Jess has that option at all zero. So we're investing uh, like as much as we can, I think, into their program because you get a guaranteed 15% discount. They look at like, what's their stock price at just June 21st or whatever. And then what's the stock price at December? And they take the lowest of those. So it's a six month period. And then whichever one of those is the lowest, that's the price that you get that you would pay, but then you get a 15% discount off of that. So it's like a guaranteed return of 15 and then could be a lot more depending on what the stock does in that time. And then both of my sets of options from Osiro and Planet Scale are options instead of grants where you pay for them yourself. But usually it's so cheap. Yeah, I was going to say it's usually like mm-hmm. a few dollars per share or something. So even if they're worth hundreds of dollars now, you still got the option to pay for them at a dollar or whatever. So, yep, exactly. Yep. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Hashnode. So, Hashnode makes it easy to start a blog in seconds on your own custom domain for free. It's fully optimized for developers and supports writing in Markdown, rich embeds, publishing from a GitHub repository, syntax highlighting, and edge caching with Next.js blogs deployed on Burstow. On top of this, your article gets instant readership from the growing community. James and I have talked before on the podcast about how valuable creating content is and how developing an online presence really does give you respect and credibility in the tech space. And really, there's no better way to do that than through Hashnode. So be sure to go to Hashnode.com and join the community. Special thanks to Hashnode for being a Compressed FM sponsor. There are a couple of interesting stories in the chat. Duncan Lutz is saying that they worked for a startup from January 2021 to February 2022. Said this information would be super useful. Didn't really know what I was getting into. The CEO burnt through $10 million in two and a half years. It's crazy. Would go for a startup again, but definitely would need to do more research. Mm -hmm. And then talk to me, Guzman, who's actually one of my coworkers, said that he was at GoPro before and after IPO. His options were priced at $17, jumped up to $100 the first year, and then dove below $15 by the time he was able to vest. So kind of sad. It's kind of crazy just to be all over the place like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not unusual. So, like IPOs are really scary because you could walk away with millions of dollars, <laughs> or you could walk away with hundreds of thousands of dollars or less, depending. You know how long mm-hmm. you've been at the company. We saw that kind of thing. Like if you look at we were is always mm-hmm. my prime example for the scariest stories you can imagine. Like burning through ten million dollars is one scary thing in two years, but that guy was burning through millions and millions of dollars every day. He had the right vision. Don't get me wrong. Like the vision was there. It was just the rest of it. But if you look at their IPO, the original valuation was, I think, 10 billion. And then the banks were like, 
when they went through the records and looked at everything, it went from 10 billion to like a billion or less. Mm-hmm. And like you could then IPO and then your stock on day one is worth $50 a share. And then by the end of the day, you could be worth $20 a share and you've just lost a bunch of money because, mm-hmm. you know, the valuation was wrong, which Facebook did that basically. They rode high for a few days and then they just dropped for a while. And that was kind of scary for a lot of people. And it's a weird situation. Yeah, there's never any guarantees, but I'm at the stage in my career where the benefits of stock options and stuff is huge. So I love that. Yep. And a lot of people do this where they go from startup to startup every one or two years and kind of bounce around and get stock and they hopefully do well. And then you're kind of continuing to make money in the background with your stock options in addition to increasing your salary as you switch. But the other thing for me, I think, is just being able to more tangibly see impact and contribute and knowing the people at my company like as a whole is super, super special. Just being small enough, like we just had our marketing offsite in Austin and it was 12 of us there in person. And I know we're bigger than Clark is and Tina, but it's so intimate and it seems so special that I really like being a part of that. So I think for my future career opportunities, it's going to stay like in a similar area, probably even smaller, because I would like to experience what it's like to start at a company with 10 employees or something and really build something up from scratch, even more so than what I've been a part of at PlanetScale so far. Yeah, because you went from all zero, which was like a few hundred employees, right? Yeah, I started, we were at 600, then we got acquired. So think right. about getting paid out. I got to pay out for the options that I had already exercised. Yep. And Okta at the time, I think was like 4,000. So now that company is totally different size-wise yep. than what it was when I joined. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done that previously. So before startups were cool, in 2009, I worked for a company that was technically a startup. They were funded by banks. That was literally how they were funded. They had only investments were from Capital Bank and somebody else. And I worked for them and they got acquired twice in three years. So they got acquired by one big company they bought us and then we got through that acquisition and then one year later they were bought by a bigger company (laughs) yeah just as an fyi i got nothing out of that deal because stock options didn't really exist back when i was there i think we got like a bonus it was like a thousand dollars and that was it and the deal was worth like hundreds of millions so yeah that was before startups were cool and like stock options and all these cool things you got were like a thing that was wild so there's a funny story when Jess and I found out that Osiro was being acquired. And I don't even remember what the number was, but it was like a couple billion with a Yeah, beam. it was a couple billion. And yep. Yeah. And in my head, earlier, like, I don't know what this means for us. Like, I don't know how much money this is. I don't, Amy's smiling. I don't know if I told her this or not. Yeah, you did tell me. Okay. And so I was thinking, like, Osiro has about 600, maybe 700 employees at the time. And I was thinking they could give every one of these employees a million dollars and still have, like, so much other yep. money in the billion. So we like we're having hypothetical conversations about what we would do with a million dollars, which is not what it turned out to be. It ended up being I was forced to have a cash out because yep. the interesting things, but forced to have a cash out at like one hundred and twenty thousand. So that was just a lump sum check that we got, which was nice. And then our options going forward converted to Octa options, which means if we continue to exercise options, they were immediately eight or nine times worth what we paid for them. So there's like. A no-brainer, right? Like we were exercising as much as we could before I left. But yeah, we were having hypothetical, what would we do with a million dollars conversations? I had that with when Plaid was getting acquired by Visa mm-hmm. because we got told how much the shares were worth. So you could right. just equate like, oh, I have this many RSUs, mm-hmm. this many are vested, and I'm going to yep. be forced to cash out. What would we do with this insert six-figure number here? Like what would we do? And then that deal fell through. 
so the wild thing was, and this is a warning to anyone that works in a startup, if you're getting acquired until the ink is dry, the deal is not done. You never know, yeah. Because a lot of people that played were like, finally, it's here. I've got like thousands and thousands of RSUs. Because I've been mm-hmm. here since the day one. Like I was one of the first employees. So they would they were buying houses. Oh, no, they were already making decisions. Yeah, they were like, oh, cool, I'm oh. going to buy a house. I'm finally going to buy a house in San Francisco. Now is the time. Oh. And then like the deal fell through. <sighs> So now you've like leveraged all of this imaginary capital in the thoughts of actually making that work. So So my other question, you're talking about the black market deals Mm -hmm. with some of these shares. Is that legal? No. Wait, the black market Um, deals? Yeah. So basically people were getting hit up. So what they would do is investors would message you on LinkedIn or Twitter Mm -hmm. or whatever. Like, I'll buy your shares for a thousand a piece. Yeah. And basically the idea is that you do a deal with them separately. Mm-hmm. And so when you get your cash out, when you get that, you get the option to keep the shares or not. And then they would basically just be like, cool, do this, you know, transactional thing with mm-hmm. us and we'll buy the shares from you once that's legal to purchase at the price okay. that we decided. Mm-hmm. I think there are legal ways to do that too. I don't know any details, but. Yes, there are ways to legally leverage your RSUs or whatever mm-hmm. if they're vested and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when you go through serious funding, there's a limited amount of shares, right? It's kind of like Bitcoin. There's only 2 million Bitcoin. So at some point, there's not enough to go around. So what will happen is you'll get what's called a preferred price purchase, where someone can buy the shares from you directly through the company that you work for. So let's say it's Plaid, right? Someone says, I want to invest $300 million and I want this many shares at your evaluation. And Plaid doesn't have that many shares, so there's two options, right? There's like dilute the shares down to make more of them or offer money to employees who have shares to purchase them and you'll get a lump sum of money. So there are like a few different ways to do that. I was just going to ask like what happens to those people that like agreed to make a black market deal and then the deal falls through. Do they still benefit but it doesn't even matter if it's not even yeah i don't really know yeah tell us all about your black market experience (laughs) (laughs) i still have mine and i've kept them i'm betting on plaid for they're a good one i want them to i reckon they'll be close to 30 or 40 billion by the time they go to ipo yeah we had some client work again covered under an nda but we did some client work for a fine tech company that was like really interested in integrating with plaid and there's another one there's another competitor that i hadn't even heard of and some of that's just come from user experience that i've seen plaid come up a couple times i did want to highlight another question in the chat so this is a follow-up from duncan lutz and they were asking where have you guys found startup jobs successfully before i've only been developing for about a year now so i'm not very in tune so i have a few different things so one is networking so discord communities all that kind of stuff If you want to be a startup, the answer is to be in the startup ecosystem. So that's things like joining Discord communities for startups that interest you. Whether you interact or not, like you could just go in there and like check it out, see what's around and kind of lurk in the background. Then you've got other Discord communities like James's, like Learn, Build, Teach. That's a community of other people. So you kind of get to know people in that space. And then it's just like being in tech, I guess. It's much easier to find a startup now than it was like 10 years ago when I was my third year in tech. Like I didn't even know what a startup was in my third year. 
but yeah, it's just basically being in the community. They're so easy to find. Basically, if you were to job search today, about one in five, maybe even more, would be a startup in some variant, whether they were series B, C, D, E, F, or if they were seed money startups. They're everywhere today compared to 10 years ago. A couple of other things you can do to like, not just find, but also gauge is like the more you're involved in the community, the more names and people that you trust. So if you see somebody that you trust going to work at a company, that's a good indicator. If you see someone that is the founder or someone that already works there that you're a fan of or know has a good reputation in the company, that's a great indicator as well. I'm a huge proponent of just reach out to people that work at companies that you want to work at or are curious about and just see what they have to say, kind of unfiltered conversations to gauge that as well. And you can go and look at how much funding have they gotten. Like if someone gets a $50 million funding round, like that's a big deal. Like obviously you can run out of that money, but that means a lot of people are investing a lot of money because they believe in them going forward. So you can gauge like how early on are they in their startup slash seed process? How much money have they funded? Who are the people on leadership? What are people saying about them in the community too? Like just paying attention to conversations on social media and discord, exactly like you said, but just being a part of that community, the more you hear, the more you see, and the more names that you'll recognize to help gauge once you come across a potential startup, if you think it would be a good fit for you. Yep. 100%. I think that big thing is just high risk, high reward as we were talking about, because you can go somewhere hoping to make it big and then have a story like Eric was talking about at GoPro where it's very volatile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My advice for that is if you're young and have no kids and it's either just <laughs> you and your wife or you're completely single, the risk versus reward is flipped. The reward is so high, that the risk doesn't matter. Once you start getting with families and being married and having a house and a mortgage and all those yeah. things that basically could destroy your life for a while, mm-hmm. like that's when the risk and reward you start to really pay attention to. But if you're like early 20s, 18, 19, just out of college, any of that kind of stuff, or your self-taught, risk versus reward, go and work for a startup. Well, and I think it's also worth highlighting. It's not always about the monetary Mm -hmm. risk reward system that if you're part of a startup that's trying to move as quickly as possible, you could end up working crazy hours in order to accomplish those goals. So you also have to evaluate just that work-life balance that you're trying to achieve. Yep, for sure. It's the number one thing I ask. Like that's just one thing I'm not going to sacrifice going forward in my career just because I've had it so good is I'm not going to sacrifice work-life balance. That's just number one. That'll be the first reason for me to leave and it'll be the first reason for me to not accept a job Mm -hmm. is if I feel like that's going to encroach on work-life balance for me. Yep. Yeah, I did four or five years of 100 plus hours a week and like people (laughs) will just expect it. Like I would be working, you know, At like five in the morning and finishing at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night every day. And that was, <laughs> yeah. So that was like before I was married oh. or whatever. But like, that's what I would do. I'd work like the only days I would take off were Saturday and Sunday. And I would work like nonstop Monday to Friday. And like, okay. it did really well for my career, except yeah. from the <laughs> fact that I was completely like mentally smashed for years afterwards. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, now I'm the same as you, James. Like, I'm in my 30s now. I'm good. If you think I'm going to work past six every day and I've started at like nine, you have no idea. No idea. Like I start at seven in the morning. I finish at four every day Mm -hmm. and I will not work a minute more. My worst boss was myself. (laughs) That's when I was doing freelance full time. 
Yep. <laughs> oh, I could definitely see it for Amy. Yeah. I mean, I see that now. Like making YouTube content is a whole separate job from just yeah. regular work. And like, if you can't fit that in during the day or whatever, like on my lunch breaks or however I want to fit that into my schedule, like at Tino, I was very lucky. They were very supportive. So I could do content as and when needed. But yeah, I would work extra hours, you know, like making a demo at nighttime and then suddenly it's 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. when you start and then it's 10 p.m. at night and you're like, oh, I should go to bed now. Cool. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. I have a hello, wife. How are you today? Like, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, there's a lot of risk there, too. So, yeah, another thing I'll add on the feeling more comfortable doing startups. So I mentioned earlier, I'm at a point in my career where I'm so confident in myself and my brand and the trust that I've built in the community. But I'm confident and if something were to happen, I could find another job. But that wasn't always the case. So yep. I kind of like my progression. This is just my experience. And I think it's worked out well of starting at something really big and fairly stable like Microsoft. Again, like layoffs happen regardless. But the likelihood of that at something like Microsoft is, I would guess, much less. So I did that at Microsoft. I worked at FedEx, which is another multi-hundred thousand employee company. And even at that point after FedEx or when I was thinking about leaving FedEx, I wasn't as confident as I am now, but I was pretty confident to say like, I can find something else if this doesn't work out. Like at the very least, I could go back and maybe not work at FedEx, but I was very successful at FedEx and I could go work at something like FedEx, if not FedEx. And I never wanted to go back there. Like I want to be in DevRel. So I was looking for those types of opportunities going forward. But I started to build that confidence in myself of being able to find something. And that network, being out in the community, having those conversations with people, meeting people, those are the things that just go so far and help enable that confidence. So for my progression, it's like more and more risk as I get older. The other thing is because I've made good money leading up to this, we've got plenty in savings. We've got plenty that are invested in the right things like for our future, all these things are taken care of. So financially, I can afford, like you said, to go several months without working. And that could potentially be me like an opportunity for me to do more of my own content anyway. But I've just kind of built up this level of tolerance for the risk that I'm willing to take And now, if it's not working for myself, it would just be like really, really small, fairly early stage startups. Yeah, I kind of did a weird progression. So I did kind of small startup that had like 100 employees, but they were funded by banks. Then I went to Fortune 500, who run the state lotteries and gambling in Vegas. I worked for them for a while. Then I went to a small credit union where I am in North Carolina. And there was literally like three people on our team. Mm. And that was it. They ran the whole of digital banking. So it was three people, even though it's a giant company, like separate completely, three people, then 100 plus people at Plaid down to Tina, which was like less than 10. And then at Clark, where I'm at again, which is, I don't actually know. I think it's like 15, maybe, if that. Yeah. I'll keep running the risk versus reward until I feel like, okay, yeah, now's the time. Maybe I need to change this. Kind of like the stock market where as you get older, you start to turn the risk Mm -hmm. down to keep yourself from crashing and burning. But yeah, I feel like it's startup city and everyone's invited right now. I love that quote. Like, that's so fun. (laughs) I mean, it's the truth. Even with the economic climate and the way it is, startups are funded. Your funding doesn't just disappear. You don't just, oh, I got a Series B three months ago and now the recession's here and suddenly all my money's gone. Mm-hmm. That's that's not what happens. So for most people, if they've been funded, they're safe until probably a few years. Yeah. The so. other thing I think is important to highlight is just because you work for a small company doesn't mean that it's like a startup or you have access right. to all those things. 
So like, for example, Zeal is a privately owned company. There are partners involved. So that's just as much something to keep in mind when you're talking about the number of people that you've worked with. So I've worked for a large company that had probably close to 5,000, at least 1,000, if not 5,000 in its heyday. And then a like around 70 to 100 person company. And then a couple of like zeals in the 20 range. And what's interesting too, is just if you're, even if you're working in a large company, like when I was at the 5,000 person level, you're still on a smaller team. So some of it also depends on the team size that you'll still be close with your team. You're obviously working with other teams in the company, but it can still feel small. Absolutely. Yeah. I think just at some point you're going to work for a startup at least once in your career, if you're starting now and it's just, whether or not you want to be in a funded one or an unfunded one. (laughs) Each one of those has its benefits and risks. And to give you even more perspective, right, because Clerk is funded and they're going to go and do refunding at some point, but they're funded, right? And Tina wasn't. So we talked about this in the beginning that I'm going to be in London in November. That would have probably not happened if I worked for Tina Hmm. because Tina doesn't have the money you know, I'd have to fund my own talk essentially. So mm-hmm. the flights, the hotel, the food, all that stuff is not readily available. But at Clerk, I sent a message like, Hey, do you guys have funds for travel for talks? And they're like, Yeah, absolutely. Just uh let us know how much it's gonna cost you and yeah, you know, we'll book flights, hotel, wherever you need it to be. That's the difference between being seeded and funded, is that opportunities like that are easier to, to swallow. Take advantage of, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm with you. One thing that I really enjoyed about being on a smaller team is that I feel like my voice is a little bit louder. Not that it's all about me, but that I have the ability to be influential within the company. Yep. It's definitely the smaller the team, the easier it is to leverage that, Mm -hmm. right? I have this idea or I believe this to be true. And that doesn't matter if you work at a 5,000 company and you just have a small team of five or, you know, at a startup. When your voice is heard, you want to stay around for longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the bigger the team, the more you get lost in the source, the harder it is for people to understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And that also goes to the culture too. Right. It's not just about team size, but also right. culture. Like when I worked at IGT, I was on a team of 30. And I don't think I was heard once in my 18 months I was there. Mm. And I ended up leaving because I was like, well, you guys aren't listening to me. So I'll just go and find a job <laughs> where people want to listen to what I have to say and, Take my input. I've been doing this for five years at this point. I'm probably the second most senior person on your whole team and you won't listen to me. So I'll go and find another job. And that's exactly yeah. what I did. And and they they've messaged me three times in the past three years asking if I wanted to go back. And the answer okay. is still no. If you're listening right now, the answer is still no. It'll be no <laughs> forever. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about daily.dev. First, I think we all recognize how hard it is to stay up to date with the latest and greatest within the tech community. But there are resources like daily.dev that provide a community-based feed of the best developer news, helping you stay current. Daily.dev aggregates hundreds of sources every few minutes and creates a personalized feed just for you according to your interests. So whether that's web dev, data science, or Elixir, anything you might be interested in, it has content for you. There is a web version of the product if you want to see exactly what the feed looks like. Otherwise, just go over to daily.dev and there's a link directly on the homepage to install their extension within your browser. From there, 
Anytime you want to load a new tab, you'll see the newsfeed. James and I both have it installed and use it to stay current ourselves, and so should you. So go check it out at daily.dev. Special thanks to daily.dev for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Well, one thing I do want to highlight from the beginning of the episode was James Perkins, when you were talking about leaving Tina, Uh was you were talking about the conversation that you had with their leadership. And I just appreciate how classy that conversation was that you were willing to continue to write blog posts and videos and things like that. And the startup culture, I mean, it might seem like a lot of options and a lot of people, but at the end of the day, it does get smaller the more you network. And so it really is important that you're not burning those bridges and that you're continuing to keep those avenues of communication open. Yeah, so my tip after being in the industry for 13 years is don't burn a bridge Mm -hmm. ever. It doesn't matter if you had the worst experience ever, right? Like manager was the worst, but your team was cool, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that's happened to me a few times or some variant of that, right? And then I've seen people burn bridges completely. I've seen people threaten members of staff and on their way out the door, like you've been fired and now they're just going absolutely crazy, right? Because Mm -hmm. maybe they were getting close to retirement or maybe they've been there for a long time. All those things happen. If you burn that bridge, there's going to be a day when you may need them or they might need you, right? And if you burn the bridge, they're not going to want you. And at the end of the day, I have never burnt a bridge. I will always understand why this has happened right this is the second time i've been let go in my career and the rest of the time i've just left on my own accord and decided i don't want to do this anymore and left but at the end of the day i know it's not the leadership's fault right that's just the aim of the game it's just the startup game sometimes you win sometimes you lose and sometimes you're trying to make you last longer so you can win and i believe in the product like i still believe in the product like i didn't leave and then immediately go and you know tear tina out of my website and be like well i don't need i didn't believe in it so get rid of it it's still there i'm still using it i still believe in it i i want them to succeed because i think the product is a neat idea and if you burn a bridge it will come back to you one way or another whether Mm -hmm. it's the company you work for now or another company that you apply for and that person has knows you because mm-hmm. that happens a lot, especially in tech startups, is that people know who you are. Somebody at that company has worked with you at some point, And if they're like, oh, yeah, that guy went and <laughs> told everyone to F off and, you know, was trashing the place when he left or burning bridges and tell people never to contact me again, they're going to tell them that that's what happened. And then you're not going to get the job. So just don't burn bridges is probably one of my number one pieces of advice as years go on. Just don't burn bridges because people are going to need you and you might need them. Well, And even if you leave on good terms and don't burn the bridge, but then you're in an interview and you talk about how you hated this company or something like that, that's a huge red flag on the interviewer side because they don't want you to turn around and talk negatively about them when that time goes on or just to have a negative attitude in general. Yeah, I've always been in the mindset that positivity spreads more positivity Mm -hmm. and if you can believe in that in any aspect, even if you have the worst experience ever and it's like the worst job you've ever had and you're never, ever, 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 ever going to go back, you know that for sure. Leaving on good terms means that you're leaving every single person at that company on good terms. Whether mm-hmm. you've interacted with them or not, at the end of the day, if they go and leave a company and you go and apply for the same company and they're like, mm-hmm. I worked with that guy five years ago and he was an absolute ass and did all these stupid things, they're not going to hire you. And then if you go and talk about some company that 
you don't know who works there. You could be like, oh yeah, I really hated for sale. When I worked at for sale, it was the worst company ever. And Guillermo was the worst guy, right? Like you could do that. And that person's like, I worked for Guillermo for 10 years and he was a really nice guy. And for sale was a great experience and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to hire this guy because he's clearly just negative. Like that could happen. So those kinds of things are, are just not worth your time. And to be clear, that does not reflect our opinion of ourselves. Or me. <laughs> it doesn't reflect mine yeah. either. <laughs> I really like you guys. Please know. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, I think we're all huge fans. If people know us, that is probably not yep. something that is misconstrued. So that's for sure. As we wrap up, we have an opportunity, which you had some notes that you sent originally, but do you have any community shout outs that you want to call out before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. You can go to my YouTube channel. You can do all those cool things. You can join the Clerk Discord these days. Like we have a Discord, chat about Clerk and things that are happening in the community. Yeah, I'm everywhere. You can find me. Polywork, I'm there. LinkedIn, if you really wanted to. And I think if you want to learn more about being successful after being let go, watch my latest video. It's a masterpiece on what to do <laughs> after you lose your job. I love it. I've got links to your Twitter and the Clerk dev twitter yep. and then i put a links to youtube videos throughout earlier too so hopefully that cool. covers most of it absolutely all right that is going to wrap up this episode and the next episode i think we're talking to tessa from AppRite. so looking forward to connect with her speaking of cloudinary she was at cloudinary before going to AppRite. and james you mentioned being an mde there so you probably already know tessa she's awesome looking forward to talking to her next week but thanks for coming on And in the meantime, that's all we got.